this morning's Old Testament reading. One of the things I find fascinating is that if you were to consider what the most uh, repeated, one of the most repeated prayers that you find in this altar uh, is not a prayer for deliverance from uh, the enemy armies, not deliverance from the axe murderer, not deliverance from the adulterer. It's a prayer for deliverance from the slanderer, from the gossip, that even the Lord's anointed feels the burning arrows and the sharp coals that come from the lies that are spread as he makes his way as a pilgrim and a stranger through this world. And that is when we read of the, uh, these areas of Meshech and Kedar. These are regions outside of the promised land. And here is a picture of one of God's uh, beloved people making his way as a pilgrim on his way to Mount Zion. Psalm 120. In my distress I called to the Lord and He answered me, Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you? And what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? It is a warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. And now, if you would turn with me in your Bibles for our New Testament reading in this morning's uh, sermon text, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verses 12 to 22. As we continue to make our way through this uh, very difficult uh, letter that Paul is writing uh, to the church of Corinth. Now, while you're uh, turning there, I would like to ask a question, something for us to keep in the back of our minds as we work our way through this morning's passage. What sort of character is required in a pastor Furthermore, why is uh, such character important? We find that throughout the whole New Testament, there are repeated passages that speak of the character that befits a minister. Here, uh, this is no less true. Uh, but here, the focus is on the question why uh, this is so important. You know, a number of years ago, uh, when I was in Florida, there was a, a congregation in our presbytery who had uh, called a minister who had been previously uh, defraught. Uh, essentially fired uh, from his position of office. Uh, about a decade prior, he had admitted to multiple affairs with several uh, women in the congregation. And now, ten years later, here is a man who stood, the same man who stands before that same presbytery, uh, with a church in that presbytery who is wanting to call them uh, as, uh, call him as their minister. And when it came time for him to appear before the presbytery, uh, the question was asked, by the presbytery, why do you want this man to be your pastor? It was interesting to hear the responses. I was there in the presbytery that day, and uh, the response was very simple. He's a really good preacher. He's really down to earth. He's really personable. He has all the gifts, so why should he not be our new pastor? And yet as we read the New Testament, we find that the qualifications for a minister of the gospel are not predominantly that of gifts, but that of graces, that of character and conduct. That it is not charisma that is the driving force behind calling a new minister, but rather it is his character. And we'll see that in this passage this morning and why this emphasis is in fact so important. So if we'll give our attention here to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12 to 22. Paul writing under inspiration 
of the Spirit. Now our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we have conducted ourselves in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so towards you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you have read and and what you understand, and I hope you will one day fully understand just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this very thing, that I wanted to come to you first, that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, whether Silvanus, Timothy, and myself, was not yes and no, but in Christ it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. And it is God who establishes us together with you in Christ and has anointed us. And who also has put His seal upon us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. This is God's Word. Let us go before the Lord and ask Him to bless the ministry of the Word. Our gracious God and Father, um, we come before you confessing that your word is clear and it is authoritative, but on account of our own uh, finitude and on account of our own hardness of hearts and sin, we need your illuminating grace to open our eyes that we might clearly see those things that are found in your word. This morning we ask that you would use the spotlight of your word to shine on our hearts and expose those areas where we need reformation. That all that we do might be done in simplicity and sincerity to the glory of Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, I think we could take this particular passage in three parts. The first would be in verses 12 to 14. We could simply call that of conduct. Secondly, verses 15 to 18, we could call that of criticism. And finally, verses 19 to 22, that of confirmation or establishment, as some um, of your translations have. Conduct, verses 12 to 14, criticism, verses 15 to 18, and confirmation, verses 19 to 22. Um, But for certain reasons, I'd actually like to begin in the middle section here in verses 12 to 14, that of or verses 15 to 18, I'm sorry, that of the criticism that Paul is addressing. The reason I do this is one of the things that, that Paul happens to do in this letter is he gives a broader principle, and then he tethers it back to the specific circumstances that are going on. And I think it'd be helpful if we understand why it is that Paul is saying what, what he's saying here uh, so that we can get the logic and the flow of his argument. If you recall last week, Paul had already begun talking about uh, the, the troubles, the afflictions that he was undergoing in Asia. Uh, 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 what we might call that of double trouble, the fact that the Gentile idol makers have uh, incited a riot because Paul's preaching has put a dent in the idol-making economy, something that forced Paul to leave Ephesus 
And as he left and went other places in his missionary enterprise, he finds that he reached a second form of affliction. Not only that of Gentile idol makers pursuing him, but that also of Jewish zealots plotting his assassination and demise. Uh, naturally, this held up Paul in his hopes to come visit Corinth by the year's end. Um, th- this isn't just simply a case of Paul getting a flat tire on the way to Corinth. Uh, when people are out to get you, you are on the run. Here is a man on the land, right? Here is a man who is doing all that he can to evade certain death. As we saw last week, Paul described this as a death sentence as he is facing all these troubles from multiple sources, people uh, chasing him down from city to city. And we'll find later on in this letter, Paul actually has to break up his entourage. He has to break up his posse. As some of the missionaries he sends to Troas, and he goes elsewhere. Paul has to somehow throw uh, the dogs off the trail. Paul spells out his initial plans. If you recall, uh, part of the purpose of Paul's missionary journey, if you read, for instance, Galatians chapter 2 and the book of Acts, one of the things that Paul uh, is commissioned with as he is commissioned uh, in the church of Jerusalem to be an apostle to the Gentiles is that as he goes from place to place, Uh, planning churches, preaching the gospel, that he is commissioned with one extra task, that he take up a collection for the poor in Jerusalem. As we'll find when we get to chapters 8 and 9, and scattered elsewhere throughout this letter, there's a massive famine that had befallen the city of Jerusalem and has caused uh, a a massive uh, health crisis of sorts uh, to the city of Jerusalem. So part of Paul's appointed task is not just to preach the gospel, but also to take up a diaconal offering for the needs of the saints back uh, at, at the mother church. Uh, but as uh, uh, many of us recognize, you know, today if you wanted to, uh, let's say, send uh, um, uh, uh, money to another church, let's say in Philadelphia or Orlando on the other side, all you have to do is use your PayPal account. You can wire the money. You don't really have to think twice about it. But in the ancient world, if you want to send money across the globe, you have to have somebody uh, dispatched to send that money. So this is a massive effort that Paul's to undertake. And so what he does, he goes from church to church and he's He's raising up appointed deacons to give this uh, diaconal fund. And so part of Paul's plan here, you see this in verse 15, Paul says he wants to return to Corinth to give them a double grace. What does he mean by that? I think when we situate this passage within the rest of the letter, we have to recognize, you see this in verses 16 to 18, Paul was wanting to stop by Corinth on his way to Macedonia. Um, If you're not familiar with your geography, there are two uh, cities in Macedonia that you'd be very familiar with, that of Philippi and that of Thessalonica. What happens is, as we see, Paul is going from church to church. These churches that we are familiar with when we read the New Testament, Paul is going from church to church, collecting a diaconal offering. If you'll turn with me just for a moment to chapter 8. I know this isn't kind of a Wednesday night Bible study Um, But at the same time, this is such a difficult letter to grasp what Paul's talking about that I think it'd be helpful if we look at one brief passage to help kind of uh, shed the spotlight on what it is that Paul's speaking about. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We'll just read the first six verses. Paul says, "Uh, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the Macedonian churches, including that of Thessalonica and that of Philippi, these rather poor churches. Verse 2, for in a severe test of affliction, uh, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty 
have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. That word there is the same word we see for sincerity here in chapter 1. A wealth of sincerity or generosity on their part. Verse 3, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify. In fact, they gave beyond their means. These are poor churches that are, are begging to give uh, to the relief of the poor in Jerusalem of their own accord. This is not something that Paul had asked them to do. This is something these church had volunteered to do. Verse 4, begging us earnestly for the favor, quite literally, for the grace of taking part in the diaconia, the diaconal relief of the saints. Verse 6, and so accordingly we urge Titus that just as he has started, so should he complete among you this act of grace. So when we think of the grace of God, one of the ways in which it's visibly manifested uh, here is in the taking up of the diaconal relief for the poor. It is an act of grace. And so what Paul is saying is here, here is that his initial plans were very simple. He wanted to go to Corinth to take up a diaconal re relief, go back to Macedonia, take up a collection there, and then come back to Corinth for a second experience of grace. In other words, to give them a second chance to contribute to the diaconal need before he is outfitted to send those relief funds back to Judea, back to Jerusalem. All right, does that make sense? All right, here we are back in chapter 1. That is what Paul is doing. It's an act of grace. It is an act of self-emptying, as we'll see uh, when we get to chapter 8. Uh, Paul will liken the, the giving of the, for the, the diaconal offering, uh, he'll compare it to the work of Christ, that though he being rich beyond all splendor for love's sake, became poor by taking to himself the form of a servant, by taking to himself flesh and blood. And it models for the church what the church should be doing. Uh, even in terms of our own finances, as we care not only for the inner man, but as we confess together, confession of faith, uh, chapter 21 on the communion of saints, uh, that we um, care for the outer man as well. That was Paul's plan. It's a very simple plan. Hey, I wanted to come take a diaconal relief, but I got held up because people are trying to kill me. Very simple. However, there is a monkey wrench that's been tossed into all this because we see that some members in the Corinthian church have called Paul's integrity into question. You see this here in verses 15 and 16. Like I said, Paul says very clearly what his goal was to visit you twice, to give you a double experience of grace, the chance to give of uh, yourselves twice in these relief efforts. But in verse 17, Paul addresses two distinct accusations that are floating around simultaneously. First is the accusation that he is double-minded. He's a flip-flopper. Here's a man who can't make up his mind what it is that he wants to do. Hey, Paul said he was going to come visit us by the end of the year, but now he's been delayed. What's the problem with him? So selfish, looking out after himself. Even though we know the reason why he's been delayed is that people are trying to kill him. And yet people have distorted the truth, saying here's a man who is indecisive. He, doesn't, he can't make up his mind. He's uncertain in what he wants. So Paul says, was I vacillating when I had to delay my visit to give you that opportunity to bless the church in Jerusalem? Is that really what's going on? Paul is saying, let's consider the facts. Not just some of the facts, so you can believe what you want, but let's consider everything. Am I a flip-flopper? There's a second accusation going on as well. Not simply that he is double-minded, unstable in what he wants to do, something that's not characteristic of what a true leader should be. 
but also that he's double-tongued, that he's a snake oil salesman. Here's a man who says one thing out of one side of his mouth, yes, while at the same time saying the exact opposite. It's the picture of a man with a forked tongue, the man who will say whatever he wants uh, to get whatever he wants. That's what uh, Paul's talking about when he says, am I here to say yes and no simultaneously? It's the picture of, uh, of the, the used car salesman, so to speak. I hope there's no used car salesman here. Uh, it's n- I'm not accusing you of anything, but it, you know, anyways, the stereotype persists. Here's the man who says whatever he wants in order for you uh, to give him what it is that he uh, longs for. Here the accusation, the second accusation, is not so much that he's indecisive, but that he is subversive. It's the picture of the man who does and says anything he can uh, to twist your emotions. What's so interesting, both of these rumors are being spread and believed by the same people at the same time. Remember years ago, there was a, a political leader, I won't say who the political leader was, I'm not here to get into politics, but just as an illustration, there was a political leader who was lampooned in the media a uh, decade plus back uh, as being uh, one of the most uh, incompetent leaders in the face of politics, lampooned in the media, satirical websites, uh, things like that, while at the same time, by the same group of people, was he not only being lampooned as being incompetent, he was also lampooned and criticized for being the great deceiver who, uh, through a particular political policy, had duped both political parties. The question is, how can it be both? Is he really a man who is so stupid that he would deceive everybody? Right? You see the problem with these conflicting accusations? It might be one, it might be the other, it might be neither, but it can't be both. And here are these accusations that are being leveled against Paul, that he is both indecisive and he is also simultaneously subversive. Which is it? But that's the paradox of gossip, isn't it? That people will believe whatever is floating around so long as it suits their own heart's disposition. It doesn't matter if the facts don't add up. But Paul is having to address these various forms of slander that are impacting his ministry in the church of Corinth. What's the problem with Paul? Is Paul really that incompetent? Is he a man who vacillates back and forth? Or is he fraudulent? Is he a man who's collecting this diaconal offering just to line his own pockets? When we get to chapter 8, we'll find that Paul has actually put in, the church has put into place mechanisms to keep Paul from lining his pockets. It's the office of the deacon. Paul isn't even actually touching the money. And yet the accusations are going that somehow he is putting his hand in the cookie jar. And so Paul addresses the issues. He says, look, I had to change plans and delay my visit because I thought I was going to die. And yet here we have a church that's so selfish. They're so critical going, oh, why won't you come sooner? This is a high-maintenance congregation, if ever there was one, this church at Corinth. Here's a church that has believed the worst about Paul. Even if the lies don't add up, this is the paradox and the problem of gossip and slander. It's what we had read earlier. It's one of the most repeated prayers that we see in this altar. Lord, deliver me from the lying tongue. We see the promise that befalls David as lies and whispers spread about him. Not that the man was perfect by any stretch. We see the same thing happen with other kings. What a mess that Paul is in the midst of having to deal with. 
But I think it's this messiness that we see here in this, the middle portion of the section that helps explain why he says what he does regarding his conduct. Seeing here in verses 12 to 14, where he says what? Now our boast is this, the testimony of a clean conscience. In other words, I've, I've not dealt with you underhandedly. I'm not acting deceitfully with you. Rather, we have conducted ourselves, we have behaved ourselves in this world with simplicity and godly sincerity. And these are really the two words that he wants to drive home, not only here, but throughout the first four or five chapters of this letter. As the character that befalls the minister of the new covenant. Here he talks about his conscience as it relates to his conduct. By simplicity, he simply means this, that he has an undivided focus on the church's well-being. He's not using Corinth as a means to a greater end, to, uh, to, to get a, a better seaside villa uh, on uh, you know, the Mediterranean coast, uh, to not, to get, you know, not to get a multi-million uh, dollar uh, uh, yacht so that he can simply go out fishing every day. Rather, by simplicity, he means this, that he has been fully up front. He has held nothing back. It's that word that connotes a picture of generosity. Here's a man who has fully given himself over to the work of the ministry. Here's a man who has given himself over to the needs of the people of God. In other words, all that he has is theirs. Here is a man who is actually, as we'll see this later, who is actually refusing to take up, uh, uh, to be paid for his ministry so that nobody can accuse him of this very thing. And yet the accusation still spreads throughout the church like gangrene. By sincerity, this connotes the picture of, of transparency. As if, here's a man who has been examined under the spotlight and found pure. Here's a man who is an open book. Here's a man who says, check, examine me. How have I dealt with you in underhanded ways? Here's this language of godly sincerity. It's not simply meaning that he's well-meaning, but rather this is a spirit-forged virtue of a man without pretense, of a man without a hidden motive or agenda. Here is a man who does not conduct himself according to the worldly ways of carnal wisdom. Paul to say over and over again, essentially, I am a pastor, not a politician. Here's a man who does not take bribes. Here's a man who does not respond to flattery. Here's a man who does not compromise the truth or try to appease under false pretenses. Here's a man who does not perform cheap, underhanded tactics where the ends justify the means. Not a politician. He's a pastor. He's not here to try to get the votes. It's not a slide on politicians, by the way. Just an example. The point is, he has a single, undivided, and transparent goal. To see Christ formed in them. That's it. That Christ would be formed in you. That we would boast mutually in one another at the day of the Lord. That my boast would not be in myself or my own accomplishments, but that my boast would be in you and that your boast would be in me. In verses 13 and 14, he describes himself as an open book. Pick a passage. Read it. You don't have to decipher it. There's no type of uh, 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 decoder ring that you need. 
You don't have to try to read between the lines with Paul. What you say is what you get. There is no dissonance between Paul the man and Paul the penman. No distance. No difference between the person and the pen. Who he is is what he writes. And now Paul writes to clear away these misconceptions to address the whispers that have spread about, that have eroded the church's confidence in him. That they might come to understand it's something that they already know in kernel truth, but really to work out the ramifications of this more fully, that they might boast in one another at the day of the Lord's return. That our delight might be in each other, that Christ might be formed and found in all of us. That our relationships would not be marred by mutual suspicion or distrust. But one of the things I think we need to keep in mind here is that Paul is not suffering from a wounded ego. Paul is not saying that somebody has scuffed his brand and now, because they've touched at his pocket, he comes at them uh, with all uh, 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 ferocity. Rather, the implications of what Paul is getting at is this, is if there is no difference between who Paul is and the message that he brings, that he is the man who embodies the message, that if these false rumors are beginning to spread and people are starting to hear them and are, they're starting to uh, 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 refuse to hear Paul, they're starting to reject Paul the person, what's the implication? The, rejected, the implication is they're on the verge of rejecting Paul's message as well. In other words, the gospel is at stake here. Here is Corinth on the verge of abandoning the gospel altogether, being lured away by celebrity preachers. And so Paul feels like he has to address it. Again, this is not an instance of egomania. That's why we actually had our Confession of Faith read this morning with respect to the Shorter Catechism. One of the things that it's required in uh, um, keeping the Ninth Commandment is protecting not only the good name of your neighbor, but also the good name of yourself. And that's something that Paul has to do here because it's not just his own personal, the, uh, people's opinion of him is at stake, but the office is at stake and with it, the gospel message. So one of the things Paul is trying to drive home is, yeah, Paul has had to undergo these altered circumstances. He's been delayed in being able to visit Corinth. But these altered circumstances do not negate God's unchanging plans. That's why he contrasts their, their, their unsteady fickleness with God's unchanging faithfulness. You see that here in verses 19 to 22. Not just with, with respect to Paul, but with respect to his whole kind of missionary entourage, that of Silas and Timothy as well. That they have labored to preach one thing and one thing only, that of Christ crucified. They have not preached deceptively, they're not the, this is not the forked tongue of con men who would say yes out one side of their mouth and no outside of the other so they could get you to line the pockets as they take up the collection. Rather, what they proclaim is a very simple promise that in Christ, all of God's promises find their resounding yes and amen. I think there are many around us today who want to treat the Bible, if they, if they treat it at all, as some form of fortune cookie. Close your eyes, open up the Bible, 
point on a random passage and then claim that promise for yourself. Kind of a, a personalized horoscope, if you will. A, a, a name it, claim it mantra where you can utter a few verses ripped from your context and hope that you'll win the next football game. Some sort of magical abacadabra where all of your deepest desires will come true. Something we see with so many TV preachers these days. Paul says, I'm nothing like that. Those guys are sanctimonious swindlers. This is not what Paul has come to preach. This is not what Silas or Silvanus has come to preach. This is not what Timothy has come to preach. Those guys are fickle miscreants. Paul and his fellow laborers are faithful ministers. And so their conduct must reflect the faithfulness of their messages content. One of my favorite theologians, Herman Bovink, said if we could summarize the whole of the Old Testament and its promises, it could be summarized in these two things. The sending of the Son and the outpouring of the Spirit. Look at all the promises that the Lord had made to His people in the Old Testament is that He would send a Deliverer, a Savior, a Messiah, one who would deliver His people from their estate of sin and misery, and that through the victory wrought by the Messiah, He would pour His Spirit out on His church and so enable His people to walk in His ways and keep His commandments. And so the great promise is found in Christ. All the promises that that are given are given to Christ and through Christ given to those who trust in Christ. That's the Old Testament in a nutshell. There are no promises that God has given that come apart from Christ. I was reading John Flavel last night, uh, uh, one of my favorite Puritans. He makes this comment. He says so many people want the benefits or the promises of God apart from the person of Christ. But you cannot have one without the other. You cannot have the benefits apart from the benefactor. It is a package deal. You want the forgiveness of sins, you must have Christ. You want to be cleansed of the shame of sin, you must have Christ. Do you feel isolated, lonely, alienated, betrayed? Adoption and reconciliation are found only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And Christ is given, He is not bought or sold. It is not something that you can simply order on the QVC network. Not something that you could purchase through Amazon Prime. Christ Himself is one who has come and has given Himself, and He has given Himself freely to whosoever would take Him, irrespective of works, good or bad. All our righteousness is as filthy rags, Isaiah proclaims. And yet the goodness of the Gospel is that in the Lord Jesus Christ He has given Himself freely to whosoever will. And that when you have Christ, B.B. Warfield says, you have everything. Because all the promises that have been given to Christ overflow as we receive the inheritance that Christ has procured. That He, though He was rich beyond all splendor, for love's sake became poor, so that out of His poverty, by His death and humiliation, we might receive the riches of heaven itself. That we might receive Christ Himself who has ascended on high. God is not a used car salesman whose promises are riddled with loopholes. What God says is firm and reliable. That is why we end our prayers with a hearty amen. 
The word amen means trustworthy, reliable. In other words, we resound with confident faith that all that we pray in Christ's name, according to the promises of God, God will answer. God is not looking for a way to get out of the promises He has made. He's not some type of conniving lawyer looking for that loophole. God has made promises. He has given them to people to sinners unworthy of receiving the promises, but that is because it is all of grace and mercy and not according to works. And so God calls us to trust in Him so that God, all that God has promised gives that hearty yes. God is not speaking with a forked tongue. Everything that God has promised will, in fact, come to pass. And so He calls on His people to turn to Him in repentance and faith so that as we cling to the promises of God, we can close with that hearty amen and say that God is, in fact, trustworthy. If we confess our sins, He is what? He is faithful. And he is just to forgive us of all of our sins. The faithfulness of God, of the God who does not change, is the repeated mark, the repeated testimony, and the repeated echo given throughout all the Scriptures. And so as we come to consider this passage and the significance it has for us today, we have to ask, what is the payoff? And I think at least part of the payoff is this, that the minister must embody the message. That just as Paul, being a minister of the New Covenant, comes to the people of God saying, this is what God proclaims, so must the character of the ministry reflect that, men that message. For the sake of the message. That the message might be embodied so that the people of God might learn to see that the Lord is indeed trustworthy. That there would be no cause for the people of God to say, maybe God was in fact lying to me. For Paul, he must embody the message because the message is at stake. To reject Paul would be to reject the message itself. Paul's manner was one marked by simplicity and sincerity, and so it sets a standard for how gospel ministers are to act today. More importantly than his ability to preach or speak to, or to hold a captivating audience, Paul actually speaks on how weak his public preaching was. Paul sees himself as a much better writer than he does a preacher, and yet he's still a man ordained by God. His manner must be marked by simplicity and sincerity. That's the very thing that we're looking for in ministers and elders and deacons, but not just them, as if, as if this lets the rest of the congregation off the hook. Rather, the idea is that Christ's officers reflect that so that they might model for the rest of the congregation the very thing that they are called to walk as well. What does Paul say uh, to the church? Uh, I believe it's a, a Philippi. Imitate me. Why can he say that? Because here's a man who imitates his Savior. That we are called to trust in Christ, but also to grow in conformity to Christ, to walk that highway of holiness, and to be a model for others that they might taste and see of the Lord's goodness as well and also seek to have Christ formed in them. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank You for Your Word. We ask that You would make us men and women and children of simplicity and sincerity. That with these virtues, we might emulate Christ Himself who gave Himself for us 
that we might become the righteousness of God and ask uh, that you would form Christ in us, that we uh, might show Christ to others. Not only the things that we say, but the lives that we live. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.